What's up, folks? Merry Christmas to you. Want to release a bonus episode here because this past week we've gotten a whole bunch of calls talking about year-end taxes. On this week's podcast, we're going to be releasing an office hours where I went over a lot of questions about can 1031 exchanges be used in a syndication, land conservation easements, is that still a thing after the omnibus bill, more discussions about real estate professional status and you know how investors are using ATM machines to get the 179 deductions there. When you start to hear other people talk about it, that's where it really brings the stuff alive and really gets the creativity moving. Just a bit of an investor tip. This is where I really started to grow as an investor and a person. Prior to 2015, I was just doing this all by myself as an introverted engineer, buying little rental properties. And up until that point, I never really knew what other people were doing. I I didn't know any other credit investors out there. I didn't know any other millionaires out there. And I had to go to a lot of these garbage conferences where you have a bunch of speakers that essentially becomes a pitch fest where the speakers pay money to come and sit on a panel. And essentially, it's not very good value to the participants because the quality of the participants aren't really curated. It's just a bunch of newbie starting investors or worse, wannabe general partners or operators. There was not really a group like we've created here, which is purely passive accredited investors. And to do that, we clear out all the garbage speakers and we have it very focused over core content and structured networking with the participants. As I started to interact with higher level investors, started to pay to get into different groups, I started to realize that most of the value you get, especially when your peer groups level up, is during the coffee breaks, the meals, after dinner drinks. And these were the times where I made the deepest connections that I still have today. And at the time, these were a lot of the people that I grew as with an investor. And this is why I encourage people to come now, especially if they're getting started, because these are the people that you're going to be still hanging around 5, 10, maybe even 20 years from now to enrich each other's life and investments. So again, if you haven't yet sign up, go to thewealthelevator.com slash Vegas. We'll take a look at your profile. And again, this can be a totally different experience than your other run-of-the-mill conference out there with regurgitating gurus out there who are just paying off the organizers to speak. And one last thing, apologize if the audio is a little shaky. I was recording it on the road as I was doing some property tours. I know we're going to have some people complain and give us some one-star reviews for that. So if you can help me counteract that by going to iTunes, giving us a few reviews for Christmas. I'd really appreciate that as that really helps get the podcast out there to more and more people so we can attract more people so we can get better people at our community events. Enjoy the podcast and we will see you guys in 2024. Situation is in the process of selling off property, wondering if there's anything a 1031 exchange into. We've talked a lot of this in the past. Do a 1031 exchange into a syndication is not a light kind of exchange. When you're in, in an investment such as a syndication, investing in a business, therefore selling off real estate is not a light kind of exchange, even though you may be going into a business such as a syndication that is investing in real estate. But as far as taxes go, to do a 1031 exchange, or if you were to do a 31 exchange to another property, many of us don't do that because the 1031 exchange usually costs like $500, $1,000. 
And then there's this 45 day rule where you have to identify the next property you're going to be going into. And I believe close in 80 days. It's just a very comfort bunch of rules that you have to follow. And my biggest against it is ultimately puts you in the same predicament if you're going into a deal that say maybe exit three, four, five years later. Now you got to in the same predicament have to exchange the property. And I think one of the things that people don't realize is that at that point, a distressed buyer and everybody knows that. So you're not buying it at a very good price. So what is the answer? The way I've done it in the past personally is when I sold off my seven rental properties back in 2000, I was able to tap into the passive losses that I had built up the years prior or that year by investing in syndication the prior placements and getting the passive losses there. Now we have the tax pile fund where you do, it's another additional source for passive activity losses. The whole idea is you get the a number of passive losses to offset that taxable gain. And some people call this the lazy 1031 exchange because it essentially does the same thing. But I, I guess they call it lazy because it's a little bit slower where you've got to plan ahead, get passive losses in the prior years or that same calendar year. But it's a slower way of doing it too, where you don't get hit with that and have to do another 1031 exchange. And I think what I'm proposing for people to consider is when you start to break up your portfolio into smaller chunks from a diversification standpoint, that's what you should be doing anyway. And also when a deal sells, you're not all alarmed having to just immediately place the money in picking the wrong deal potentially. And then as opposed to just getting hit by all these taxes, right? I think a lot of people, they may, they make a lot of bad investment decisions by just investing in a deal where, because they need it the same on taxes. So something to think about, again, I'm not saying that the 1031 exchange is a bad idea. I just think that keep two exchanging for under a million or $2 million of capital gain, then I just don't think that's the tool for the job. 10 exchanges are good when you have this huge amount of capital gain, again, seven figures plus. But when you're just selling off a rental property and have a hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand dollars of capital gain, then you really should just accumulate passive losses just through passive investing and offsetting it. What we kind of point here, the lazy 1030 exchange. Hey, I, I was wondering if you've heard any update on land conservation easement, if anyone's heard anything, if that may happen this year, or are we still at kind of those tough numbers that they came out, I guess, Congress dealt with in December? Yeah, I personally don't do that type of stuff. I haven't heard of anything, but I usually start to bug people, yeah, around Halloween. Yeah, we'll let you guys know on the phone what's going on there. But overall, I am I would just be careful with that stuff much more than like last year because this year there's that new omnibus bill that supposedly is cutting those conservation easements down to an X as opposed to five X. So and it is washed in terms of your tax benefits to when you incorporate the risks in there too. Yeah, the numbers don't really work as well as they did. I have never done one, but I was just hoping to make some movements this year, but I, I think I may wait. And okay. But that said, I'm not, I certainly think it's not getting any better. Yeah. But if you're, you are a single guy, that conservation easements is really your only thing that can go on attack ordinary other than that, for some people think real estate professional status, that's where you can use those passive activity losses, the tax file fund or other investments to lower your income that way. But yeah, the, the people who are filing single 
are the ones that typically will be cornered into doing those conservation easements, despite being a little bit more sketchy, lack of a better word. Yeah, I'm just doing my taxes this week. And yeah, I'm hitting that 35% bracket and that really hurts. And we're going to look at the real estate professional. It's just, I just don't think the energy is worth it for us, just based on how much energy it's going to take to get there. I'm still looking at it and I'll probably look into some of that oil and solar, I think, and see what else I can learn. Yeah, rep status, sign the way you're talking. It's probably too late this year. You have to plan ahead and allocate active participation hours to that. But yeah, look at your taxes and you got to make a plan board. Right? Best time to do it was yesterday, but the next best thing is next year. Yeah, and I signed up with uh, that Global Unified. So I'm going to be talking with them. Or I just sent them a bunch of stuff. We're going to do some planning for the next year and after. Hopefully they'll come up with something. Yeah, I'm always, I'm not a CPA. I'm trying to give anybody tax advice here, but I'm usually pretty conservative with rep status. You're going to have one spouse not working and then have the hours of active participation, which means you actually have to have rental properties that you operate. But of course, talking to the CPA and I think you've got a good one where they could be able to have them sign off on rep status another way. And then now it's a race to get the passive activity losses to lower income that way. And I certainly think that's a lot less of a risk audit-wise than going the conservation easement route. And every time somebody says oil and gas deals, I just cringe. And I haven't really found operators that are reliable. I know a lot of people push them. And the reason why they push them is because people are not really reliable and they have to pay all these. It's all illegal what they do, right? They give people kickbacks for raising capital for these oil and gas deals. But yeah, just be careful there. Yeah, for sure. You just have to always look at the big picture. And if you're working so hard to get rep status, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. That's that whole tail wagging the dog thing. And I'm still looking for quality of life. I've just got a lot of suspended passive losses already. So they're just sitting there looking at me that I can't really use them. Talk to your CPA and find a way to neck rep status so you can actually use those losses. I got to go get some properties though. You know, talk to them. I was just talking to a client and they're both full-time workers. I don't think they got rental properties and supposedly their CPA checked the box on that. But you know, that to be didn't sound right. That's between them and their CPA. You're going to Texas or something soon, aren't you? Yeah, I just got done a walk of some assistant event here in the state of Florida. I guess they probably have the false retirees here. And yeah, we have that Houston property one day. And then the Oker site, these are both development. And then we'll take them, you know, we'll throw in a stabilized born class B apartment, Whispering Oaks. Yeah. Well, to get a flight, be here. A uh, question, the investment for M. Can we put some this year and some next year? Yeah, I'm trying to make it all go on the same PPM, but at the very least, buy them this year. And then next year, we may have to do the PPM, but we'll deal with we'll, we'll that with next year. But you got to remember, next year, the bonus sheet goes down from 80% this year, 60% next year, being that the first year loss will be slight less. It may not matter to you. You'll still accumulate the same amount over the subsequent years up to year seven, but it just makes this year a little bit better. The cutoff for this year would be getting your fund before December 10th. Okay. And then accredited investor is required? That's correct. You got to get that third party accredited form in there. So I had mine before. Do I need to resubmit it? I think you do, but you should be able to use the same 
you just got like a PDF or CPA, same thing. So do I need to reset? Because there is a date, apparently there is a date, expiration date. That's why we tell you guys not to go to those third-party servicers because they put an expiration date on there so you pay them more money. Okay. Get it from your CPA attorney and they okay, can on it easier for you. It probably won't charge you 50 bucks every time. Yeah, I'll, I'll ask United Global then for... Yeah, I mean, they're going to be the cheapest. Maybe if you got a special deal with them, then don't tell us. If we start December 10, so is the depreciation start in January or for this year? For this year, because the <laughs> asset will be bought in the year 2023. Okay. The first tranche will be November 10 to get your funds in for that. Basically, yes. the funds that are wired in will be purchased the middle of the month. So you get your funds in by November 10th, it'll be purchased around the middle of the November and then same thing like December 10th. And then that would be obviously purchased for the calendar year of 2023. Okay. Just shoot us an email. We'll, we'll get you pointed to the right signing portal. Hey, Lane, how do you like this new Wells Elevator website? Is it all up and running 100%? I would say it's 70% of the e-courses we have up. It's really nifty. If depending how much access rights you have and what deals, what e-courses you're in, you just log in with your password and certain things will appear based on if, what rights you have. I didn't know what the team was working on the last few months, but I'm actually pretty impressed with the product. But yeah, I mean, you know, let us know, start to play around with it. The e-courses are a lot nicer, I'll say. Just the formatting. And I think one problem that was, there was just a lot of stuff. And then the old e-course sometimes didn't record if you did a certain section or not. This was a lot better. But the big improvements are on the public side because the wealth elevator thing we do is only private equities, education, real estate, which I think does cater towards like the majority of our investors, guys between $1 and $5 million net worth. Because when you're in that range, you have to still grow your net worth and invest in businesses, ventures, real estate, you know, for the better returns and the tax benefits, pay less taxes. The wealth elevator goes beyond that. And it also goes below that too, right? For non-accredited investors, investing in little rental properties, there's that content in there too. But we're going to definitely start to build what's beyond that next level. I, I, I think speaking for myself and a lot of our investors, we all agree that there's a huge gap in real financial education that should be taught in schools. However, you know, a lot of what we've learned is it's not all black and white. There is a lot of soft skills with interacting with people, networking, and, you know, finding the best risk-adjusted returns for your personal profile within your whole portfolio. And it is not super clear-cut way of teaching it, but I think that's the long-term goal is to put together a curriculum in the right order, in a very consumable format, and under the whole wealth elevator construct. In the new book, we'll have a chart. What do you do at all these different net worth levels? And what are you doing for taxes? What are you doing for credit investor banking? Are you using retirement accounts? Are you using solo for 1Ks at which floor of the elevator? That's where in the long term, at least my goal was to create a body of work that, you know, morbidly thinking like if I died or something, that it would be there for somebody to uncover and follow the, the steps to get there. Hey, Lane, I was doing some Google searches on ATM investing and 
it seems like it's pretty popular with a lot of investors. You think it's like oversaturated, all the ATMs that are deployed out there. There are only so many airports that are in this country and retail and whatnot. When you're talking ATMs, it, it just seems like there are just so many getting deployed. Go look how many ATMs are there in the country. I figure like every seven to 10 years, those things need to get replaced. Okay, so they're going into the same location. Okay. Yeah, and that's prospectus of this type of fund. It's not to like oil and gas wells, right? There's no drilling points. And then they're what they call wildcat are like total explorational. You may not get anything. You might get a gusher. This fund is more like your blue chip locations, like not wildcat formation, if that makes sense. Okay. What about like network support? All, how when you go to walk up to an ATM, you see all those like branding, all those like little badges. Do you have to support? Does the ATMs that we invest in have to, will they be supporting like all those various networks? And so the way it works is you and I can't just go and get an ATM and just plug into the ACH network. You have to get to a level where you're sponsored by a bank and there's obviously a lot of audits and we're going in with the top four operator in the country. I'm just trying to think about how I'm going to invest. If I'm intrigued, definitely. I, if I were to sharpshoot it, I'd be looking from a different angle. It's like, all right, ATM, I don't use them. None of my friends do. Then again, that's, you're talking about the underbank portion of the population, right? The bottom third. And I think logically, you'll get to a point where, yeah, okay, I see where this isn't really going to be going away, but it might at some point. And, but it went, right? Maybe 10 years, probably at more at that point. But that's where you're getting your principal back in year four. Yeah. And say is if you're not getting the benefit of the passive losses to help you out this year or next year, then you shouldn't be investing in this thing, guys. Okay. Yeah. I was actually intrigued by the preferred returns, which was pretty, sounded pretty amazing. It's a little misleading, right? Because it's different than real estate. In real estate, you get your principal back. But in this one, your payments stop and that's it. So if you were to compare apples, it's more like a 10% return per year. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, you get your principal back in year four. But then after year four, those three years, it stops after the seventh year. So yeah, you so like year five, six, seven, you're getting what, like 25%, right? So times three, 75%. Mm-hmm. It's really what your returns are. So divide that by seven years and you see how I get almost like 10%. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. So it's okay. It's better than what most people are getting out there certainly, but like for sophisticated investors, it's okay. It is passive income, not ordinary income, Mm -hmm. but it's getting this big glut of passive losses your first year is what's really pushing it over the edge. That's where it makes sense where you're saying this is really for for a passive activity loss kind of investment. If you're a guy using real estate professional status, or maybe you're selling off rentals, like how I mentioned at the top, right? The 1031 exchange alternative. I think this is a really good tool for that. But if you're somebody who has hundreds of thousands of dollars of passive losses already may not make sense other than just diversifying away from real estate a little bit. Okay. And then this is a silly question. 
I think I already know the answer to it, but your rep status is obviously legit and it's from what you do as a syndicator, right? Or do you have a rep status from other means? I'm a little bit different. I don't really have ordinary income, remember? Okay, true. And I think that's where people should get to where the idea is, as I used the analogy, you go from like a gas guzzling high ordinary income mix to like full electric, clean energy, which is all passive income mix. Not just, you don't need rep status at all. I don't need rep status. Okay. Yeah, that's something to think about. It's like one of those things like I'd have to husband, spouse for now, but if one of you quit your job, then you don't have that much income at that point. Then is there tracking the deep of machine? Yeah, you, you get monthly statements. I believe I put it in the Q&A webinar section, but you get number of transactions and then the fees that are collected. That's the level of reporting. And of course, distribution. I'm just learning the air machine in El Salvador. They use it for coin. President approved coin transaction instead of cash. Common people doesn't have enough money to open the bank account. So they use Bitcoin for their daily life. They use at the air machine. Yeah, for coin. The software can be reprogrammed for that Epcoin stuff. But like the way I look at this one is like, that's all kind of superfluous. For now, it's just an ATM. And in my opinion, yeah, maybe things change in five years, but I don't really see it changing too much. But it is positioned if that stuff does get traction to also maybe you make even more money with those types of transactions. If I'm getting the sense, people kind of key in on that stuff way too much. Again, like we're talking about the lower third unbanked portion of the population. Yeah, I think perhaps looking into the future. Again, that's just how I look at it. This is not a long-term investment, in my opinion. Hey, Lane, the banks that have ATMs, I know that Bank of America has taken away a lot of the tellers and even drive throughs Are those kind of in the mix for as part of the operation? Yes. So what's happening is the big banks, the Chases, the Bank of Americas, they're getting away from ATMs because it's a pain for them to do. Of course, they're still going to have the ATMs at their brick and mortar location. But a lot of the ATMs we're talking about aren't those. These are the ones that are more satellite scattered amongst the cities. And that's the one, that's what you're referring to. Like those big banks are getting out of that business. Oh, so banks used to operate those ones that like at 7-Eleven, I would see like Chase branded. Yeah, uh, like a city branded one. Oh, yeah, exactly. And those were owned by the banks. That is my understanding. Like at one time, they would have that. But with the technology aging, and it's just not the core business of a bank, right? The core business of a bank is to sell people's loan at mass scale and make fractions on everybody's money. This ATM thing is a bit of a pain for them. It's somewhere where a scrappier operator who scales dealing with that pain can make money, especially when that space is being vacated by these larger banks. It's no different than like class B and C apartments. Big read institutional investors don't really want to touch them because they're too much of a pain, but you can make some good money with it. Same concept. Okay, gotcha. Thanks. They'll continue to have their ATM holdings at their brick and mortar locations, but this is that trend where the more satellite ones are going to be trailing off. 
but I'm sure 7-Eleven has agreement with the big banks to keep them there. If you go look on the side of an ATM and in the side of 7-Eleven or those main convenience stores, it may be still operated by the big bank. Certainly the other more satellite type of ATM is out there. At one time, it might have had a big bank brand name, but now it's operated by one of these smaller operators. And we're investing in the operator that is the fourth largest ATM operator in the country. But it's tricky because sometimes you may have an ATM that says a big bank brand name, but that might just be a marketing agreement where they pay us like $50, a month, put their sticker on it. Now you guys are more cop keen to what's going on in the game. It's operated by a smaller operation company. You know, of course, everybody has to make their own investment decisions. I still like it, even though I think ATMs are probably going away in the next decade or two. But my whole point is don't do this unless you're going to get the impact of the passive losses in that first years. Yeah, that, that makes it a much clearer kind of option for me because I was looking at both, but I built up a lot of passive activity losses last year. So I think I'll probably end up not needing it for a while because I don't have any more investment properties. So when I exit out, whenever the deals I got into, whenever they exit, I'll be able to use those that I built up. Yeah. And I think you got the right idea. It's just we haven't really been doing deals as of 2022. And not a lot of people have just been getting like globs of passive losses, right? So I had to help people get something. So they help people selling off their rental properties with the capital gain. This helps mitigate that for them. Yeah, this sort of came in perfect last year. Yeah, sorry. People, when they talk about this investment, they kind of market it like in a little misleading way where they'll say, yeah, you're getting 24.9% per F, which is true. And then they also add in there, oh, but you're also saving, you know, 20 grand a year taxes. So it's like you got an extra 20%, like something that is totally based on your personal tax situation. And I just wanted to be more transparent. Hey, everybody's in a different tax situation. Of course, you may have to be using rep status to go after your order income and you may not be selling off rental property. So your benefit to investing here on top of that 24.9% prep will be different than another investor. Or I think what you're saying, you already have passive losses and you don't really foresee eating anytime soon in the next couple of years. But then again, you may need it in three years from now. And with bonus depreciation going down, now might be the time to just grab them and keep it suspended on your profile. That'd be the only other thing I would say for somebody in your profile to Consider. Yeah, I, I would have if I had more dry powder, if you will. But this is definitely a good, intriguing offer. It's just it makes it more clearer now after talking yeah. to you. And and that's I am like you guys need to make your own investment decision. And like these investments in a way are tools. Some help you make more returns. Some are better for taxes. And some do a little bit of both in different combinations. But at the end of the day, everybody is accountable to what they invest in. In their whole portfolio and their taxes. And here are just some tools that our group uses. Of course, talk to your CPA and if anybody needs a referral to our new partner there, but just trying to help out. Yeah, this will help us actually. I know the interest rate view, as you can tell, I've been focusing more on that the last five or so years and the worry that I found. What's your view on that and how are you riding the wave of that? 
with interest rates how they are, the loan to values are very low. So it, it's really hard to make deal pencil now, which is why you haven't really seen us go after the value add multifamily deals since like last summer. Fed is probably going to raise rates one more, but then keep it there for maybe about a quarter or two at least. I do think late next year, you're going to see inflation go back up, but semi-long term, maybe next three to five years, I think the Fed's rate's going to be around four, unless there's some kind of war or another pandemic or excuse to lower the rates. More just focusing on development, also diversifying too. I, I think it's a mistake for investors to have a complete one or two year period where just not investing in any. One thing is diversifying in different projects, but the other thing is diversifying amongst a longer period of time too. Yeah, I agree. From Just from a diversification recommendation, I think the this ATM is pretty good if you want to diversify. Hey, Lane, about interest rates, how are you going to manage refinancing when some of these deals come up for refinancing, like the Normandy and uh, out of the uh, construction loans? Whenever they come up for, no, you got to renew them. But that's the nice thing about development is you so greatly increase the value in it where, you know, that's the problem with multifamily value add. When you really look at what the heck's going on, the business plan is just to increase the net operating income by 20%, which isn't very much. Yeah, it's enough to double our money, but 20% NOI is not a huge amount of value added that it could be just be taken away just by a market depreciation, could be stuck in a cash-in refinance, even if you do everything right from our operation standpoint. The development deals are a lot more sheltered. Similarly, of course, you can execute build. Issue is with the value add deals where you, you know, you're going out and only trying to achieve like a 20% NOI bump, which is pretty much all multifamily deals where you're trying to double your money. So the banks look at the developed project differently. Before you go into a project, it's not like it's worth nothing. But once you get a certificate of occupancy, your value goes way up. And then similarly, like on Chase Creek, we just hit stabilization a couple months ago. So 90% occupied or more. So again, our evaluation went up. I think everybody is pretty much okay in a situation where you implement the business plan. And yeah, maybe it's a bad time to sell. All right, cool. We'll just hold on to it. But I think what's hard for at least for me is like you do everything you can but the market has taken things outside of your control and when you're doing a business plan just to bump that net operating income by 20 percent, if there is a bad market like how we've had your faith is in the hands where the cap rates are and that's not a good feeling like i did everything i could i studied the hardest i got the gpa i needed but i still didn't get into the medical program i wanted to it's one of those that's tough yeah so you just continue to just hold on to the asset until the market improves. You got to white knuckle it the whole time. Yeah, you got to hold on to it or be a forced seller and not make any money. Situation is, this is the kind of the way I explain it. Like you have ordinary income and then you have passive income. There's a few other ones like dividend income and I don't know, it doesn't matter. Nobody has them. But as far as like your guy's business, Tubby 2, 1099, it's ordinary, right? It's a bad color of money. Mm -hmm. The passive income is really what you want to get to because obviously, it's passive, right? But more importantly, from a tax standpoint, you can use these passive losses to offset and knock out this passive income. But there's a red line here. You can't use the passive losses to offset ordinary income unless you have this real estate professional status. Are you guys married or like just... I, I am not. I think my business partner's considering it for the tax benefits, but I'm not. Okay. So for your business partner, if the spouse stays at home and doesn't work, then 
it really opens up this opportunity to go after this. Yeah. What I would probably say is they need to find the 5% of CPAs out there and finagle them to check the box for you. Yeah. But essentially you have to have your spouse can have a full-time job and you have to have, supposed to have 750 hours of active participation in your portfolio. Then that's, this is the hard one, but dude, I have, I teach this stuff conservatively so I don't get into trouble, but yeah. I see some, what some of my investors do is just, man, that ain't right, but whatever, your CPA is checking the box for you. you yeah. Know? yeah. And then once you get this, now this red, this wall goes away. Yeah. Now you're able to use the passive losses, like from our tax pile fund, the ATM machines, which is effectively getting you passive losses through the upgressing of those ATM machines. And yeah. that's how you're using the passive losses and hit this ordinary income. So your business partner will drop from 350 and and then I would say drop them to 200 at the very least. Or you may be like, screw it. I want to drop it down to freaking nothing. Obviously, that's it's a graduated scale. So like for a lot of our investors and probably for you guys in the future, right? Like you guys will have a good business year, maybe make 500, a million. The idea is to lower it to this red line here because that's the big jump from 24 to 32. Wow, that's incredible. Whether yeah. you, you want to drop yourself down even more. Yeah. To me, it's a waste of, passive losses but whatever you guys want to do yeah you mean so you can keep make sure that like in following years you can still hit that 24 percent bracket with those losses this is like where we play chess and where most people are playing checkers like it's whatever you want if you have the passive losses you can drop your income to whatever you want the rep status is kind of like the bull and then these passive losses like the arrows yeah where do you want to use them as your choice yeah yeah if you have rep status then you need the passive losses. And before the tax pile fund, the only way to do it was through investing in these real estate deals. But we stopped doing deals last summer, 22, when the interest rates started to go up. So for a lot of our investors, they're like, where the heck do I get passive losses from? And so that's why they've been clamoring over this tax pile fund, even though most of them doesn't really matter. Like even like where your business partner's at, you're not in the highest tax bracket. I wouldn't freak out. But for you, yeah, you're getting killed as a single filer. I think right now he's filing single as well so yeah we're getting crushed yeah yeah i don't want to push him over the edge it's bad marriage advice might get divorced take all his money anyway but yeah yeah i for sure but what do you do lane because i i know you said you were investing in a bunch but do you still just have enough passive losses to carry over or you yeah you get to a point where that's the idea that's what we call like passive activity loss nirvana yeah where at some point you invest in so many once you're in like more than half a dozen deals or invest in more than a quarter million half a million you're gonna have a lot of suspended passive of losses built up and it'll be on this 8582 form here. And if you don't use them, then it just stays on the cloud for you. But, and that's where I'm to drive yourself from a hundred grand down to zero. I think that's a waste because your yeah. benefit is not that much. How long are they good for? They're forever unless the tax code drastically changes. Okay, so what year you apply them is up to you. Yeah, okay. now that's, that's where okay. never say never. Like sometime, yeah. I, I don't think it'll ever really go away. You might just say you can only use it to drive your income down to 50 percent or whatever i don't know but i yeah. wouldn't really worry about that type of stuff it's just like a business expense you yeah. you buying a bunch of sharpies you're always gonna be writing that off all day you don't see so, any tax changes with that don't you have any of your investors that like only take pay themselves through like qualified dividends and real estate real returns from syndications because those are like the syndication returns are counted as passive income right like they're taxed Correct. like 15 percent. so i would say get away from that thinking i think that's where people get confused with like long term or short term 
own capital gains, this type of stuff. I think you're right, but I'd say it's minutia. Like if it's a long-term capital gain or you've been in a deal for a year, again, some CPAs are different on this, right? Like the CPAs we'll work with usually say about a year or more is long-term. But the lower your, this is where the rich get richer, right? The lower your AGI is, the less it is too, right? You see how the sliding scale here? You're saying I shouldn't focus on trying to like just get my actual stuff to pay my bills from passive sources. You're saying I should just focus on AGI, just always focus on AGI. That's the biggest thing I think you can control. The long-term, short-term, that kind of, I feel like that's secondary and it, it'll naturally occur over time with this stuff anyway. Okay. But most of these deals are over a year anyway, right? Yeah. I'm just trying to put everything in qualified dividends and like real estate because we're, yeah, we're just getting crushed, man. We've been in like that 35, uh, maybe but, 37, investing in what's called qualified dividend stocks. Oh, see, that's a different world than us. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And I think you are right. I'm not, I'm, I don't really know much about that stuff because I don't do that stuff, but I think sure. you might be right. Yeah. But oftentimes, like, I just get the feeling just like opportunity zones with that stuff. You're yeah. letting the text to await the dog a little bit. What do you mean? I don't follow. Some people are like, let me, I want to invest in a deal. I don't want to do like the PEP fund, for example, because it's like monthly income and that's what I want, but it's 1099 income. And I'm like, dude, who cares? You need freaking returns. And plus you're in the lower tax bracket anyway. Your AGI is only 200, some returns. Yeah. And that's where people just focus. Sometimes they focus on the wrong things there. Yeah. Just trying to squeeze out less taxes versus actually. And it's return. like opportunity zone thing is, yeah, you get these nice tax benefits, but you're investing in a crap area. Invest okay. a good area and a good deal first. That it's the saying, right? That letting the tax tail wake the dog. I see. Okay. Totally get what you mean now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Focusing too much on the optimization versus the actual performance as the baseline for your investment. But I think that's typical with retail investors, is you guys and myself included, right? We look at certain things we don't know. We focus on the things that we do know. It's like a lot of these like retail investors, they focus in on splits and fees because that's all they know about. Little do they know that they're investing with a shyster and just a new <laughs> operating group. That's a big picture. Yeah. But yeah, this is, you guys can go through the recording later, but this is what some of the pros will do. They, they play it really aggressive once you have that rep status out there. But yeah, that's essentially, that's taxes in a nutshell. So initially you guys make a whole bunch of ordinary income. You grow your net worth over a couple mil or a million. Then you start to invest in these types of deals. And then you start to go from high friction right now. You especially, right? Because you're single. You pay a lot in taxes. You're getting killed. But you need that high income to grow your, your base. But over time, you go to this more passive income, kind of hybrid Prius mode. But if you ask me, I don't do rep status personally because all my income is really passive and I draw my ordinary income down to nothing. That's what I was getting at earlier is like eventually, you, that's what you're saying naturally happens as you invest in more deals, like you can eventually do that. So like for you, Lynn, from the wealth elevator or whatever your LLC is for your main business or your C-Corp or whatever, do you just not pay yourself basically? Yeah, I don't pay myself a salary. It's different for me because I'm the sole owner, right? For sure. How do you like not get taxed on that profit you're making though? Do you just leave it in the business and you're never going to take it out till you like renounce your US? Yeah, this is what we call the the golden hamster wheel. If you continually reinvest your money, you're going to get more passive losses. And then that was what I was getting at earlier. Like we call this passive loss nirvana. The more and more you invest, the more passive losses you tend to accumulate. And you get to this point where you're like scratching your head and shoot, am I ever going to pay taxes on it? Either one or two things will happen. You'll either die and play that game or you'll slowly <laughs> divest your alternative investments where you get tax benefits and you go into more traditional investments where you don't and then yeah you may have to start to pay taxes on that but, if 
future. But what I'm confused about, Lynn, is like if you're taking any of the profit from your business to invest in these passive investments, isn't it taxed the money that goes from your business to these passive Yeah, but I'm offsetting it in that same year with other passive losses. But isn't that active income from your business? How can you offset the active income from your business with passive losses? I'm doing rep status. Gotta figure out how to do rep status. Yeah, you gotta get married to somebody who doesn't have a job. Not that hard. Can't we just change the name of our business to like Attention Labs Real Estate Investment Firm? Yeah, why don't you two of you guys just get married? Like Frank and Larry, right? (laughs) Oh man, yeah. Because you're still, your company still has a lot of deals under it or have to claim real estate professional status. You guys do so much in real estate, don't you? Yeah, I would think so, right? I hope so. If not, like God help everybody. Okay. All right. Looks like we got to the top of the hour. Close out this office hours. Sorry, guys, I'm running around today. The the property tour took a lot longer. Actually, it was more of a secret shop. We'll definitely, we'll make it up to you guys the first Saturday of the month. But yeah, thanks everybody for coming.